And we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3. Got one? Exodus chapter 3. All right, Hannah, you want to grab a Bible there? There's a couple there. You can grab one. Uh, but that one's not going to have it, Anna. That, that one's just the New Testament. You've got to get the, the big ones. Awesome. All right. Um, well, here we are, back in Exodus, all right? Just, I really um, value you guys having your Bibles open in front of you because um, you know that you follow along better if you're, if you're there, and this is worth following along in, all right? Well, this morning we're going to start, um, we're going to actually be in Exodus just the first half of chapter 3. Uh, you can see in your Bible there that there's no, like, headings breaking up chapter 3, um, and that's because it's one long conversation between God and Moses, and it actually doesn't end at the end of chapter 3. It goes all the way through chapter 4, verse 17. All right? Um, I'm going to put us on pause, though, for one minute, though. All right. All right, so Exodus 3. Well, so I want to begin this morning by introducing you to a missionary named John Patton. You guys ever heard of the name John Patton? Okay. Yeah, there's a general, right, with that name, but this is the missionary, John G. Patton, born in Scotland, um, went with his wife in 1858 to the New Hebrides, which are islands located between Hawaii and Sydney, Australia, right? So if you're like draw a line between Hawaii and Australia, um, it's like two-thirds of the way to Australia away from Hawaii, islands just in, out in the Pacific Ocean, okay? Um, and... They were known back then as being cannibalistic islands, okay? The first two missionaries to show up with the gospel, potentially the first time that the gospel had ever arrived on these islands, um, were killed and eaten within minutes of showing up on the island, right? So first two missionaries killed and their bodies are eaten by these cannibals. And so 19 years later, here is John Patton, and he hears about these islands and the need for the gospel to go to them. And he says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go. Takes his wife, hops on a boat from England. So you, you have to imagine, like, nowadays you hop on a plane and you could be there in about a day. Um, he has probably about six months to think about it as they're going. I'm going to cannibals. I'm going to cannibals. I'm going to cannibals. I'm going to go share the gospel with cannibals, right? Um, and he finally gets there. Well, when he gets there within a year, his wife and their newborn son die um, and he's left all alone sharing the gospel to this cannibalistic group, okay? And so I want to share one little story with you from that time. Um, so there's this one moment where he had, you know, built his home, and he had built a small little um, corral where he kept some animals, and he hears goats, the bleeding of the goats, um, bleating, that's the noise they make, not bleeding. He doesn't hear them bleeding. Um, but it, it, they're in distress, something's wrong, and he runs out to see what's going on, and it's a trap. They have, uh, the, the cannibals have used it as a trap to get him to come outside, 
Um, instantly, it says, a band of armed men sprang from the bush and surrounded him with raised clubs. He had fallen into their trap. They said, you have escaped from us many times, but now we are going to kill you. So the question is, what would you do in that scenario? What would you do in that scenario? Think for a minute. Any answers? Yeah, come on, Haley. Give us a good one. She, she wants to, but she's not going to. Okay, yes. What I want to do is fight, but realistically, that's not going to happen. Uh-huh. So, I don't know. I'm just yeah. Right. <laughs> Fighting is definitely an option, right? Yes. Run, right? So this is like the fight or flight response, right? You either fight for your life or you run away. Or screaming is definitely going to help the situation. At least it's the natural response. Yeah. I would maybe try to reason or just make up an alibi. Nice. Yeah. Bad juju for whoever kills me, right? That kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Fight. You're going to go fight. One more. Yeah, so like, think back to Kung Fu Panda. Pretty sure I saw that recently. There's got to be the whooshy finger hold. How does that work? I don't know, but skadoosh. Yeah, okay. We'll figure it out. Well, here is what John Patton did. Lifting his hands and his eyes to heaven. Oh, just remember, angry cannibals surrounding you. Lifting his hands and his eyes to heaven, Patton committed his cause to the Lord, whose servant he was, and he prayed the divine presence over, as he prayed, the divine presence overshadowed him, his heart was filled with a tender reassurance, and the cannibals slipped away one after another. Thus, affirms the missionary, Jesus restrained them once again. His promise is a reality. He is with his servants to support and bless them even to the end of the world. So John Patton had such faith in God that he took his eyes off of those who were about to kill him and looked to the only one who could save him. And he did. And God saves him. And they, they all slipped away. Okay? So the knowledge that God was with John Patton is what gave him great courage to face much opposition. And so I want to ask, does it do the same thing for you? Are you aware, if you're a Christian, that God is with you? Does the knowledge of God's presence with you mean anything to you? Does it help you in any way? Does it reaffirm you? Does it encourage you? Does it give you courage? When was the last time you even thought about the fact that God is with you? Well, this topic is brought into view through our passage today. And so let's begin reading our passage in Exodus chapter 3. We're just going to do three quick points. Um, the first of which is God gets Moses' attention. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. 
And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Well, so right from the start, we have a couple questions, maybe. So let's, let's go through this passage again. Um, Moses comes to a place called Horeb. And it says it's called the Mountain of God. The Mountain of God. Now, can you guys think of any really important mountains in Scripture? A couple of them. What would you say? Yeah, Mount Sinai is going to be a really big one, right? Um, any others? Mount Carmel, okay, yeah. That's where Elijah goes and um, prays, yeah. Those are two of the big ones, all right? But, but what's interesting about Mount Sinai is Mount Sinai is called a couple different things, okay? Mount Sinai is also called Horeb at different points in the Bible. So what we see is where God meets Moses for the first time is on Mount Sinai, okay? It's the same mountain where the people are going to be led out and God's presence is going to descend upon it and he's going to give them the Ten Commandments and things like that, okay? So I think that's why they call it the mountain of God here is because Moses, as he writes the story, because he's the author of Exodus, as he writes the story, he calls it what everybody knew that it was. It was the mountain of God. It was where God had come to meet the people. It was Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, it says that he's met by the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appeared. Now this phrase, the angel of the Lord, doesn't just mean any old angel, okay? This is a phrase that's used throughout scripture um, to refer to God himself, but sometimes it's like an angel that's distinct from God. So it's this kind of interesting thing. So here we see that the angel of the Lord appears to him, but then who talks to him? God talks to him, right? And so I, here it seems like the angel of the Lord is just another word for God, that God is the angel of the Lord. But at other points in the Bible, the angel of the Lord seems a little separated from who God is, okay? And so one of the ways that we can understand this is some people think that this is Jesus before he comes to earth as a baby. That the Trinity, which is an eternal Trinity, that Jesus has been around forever, this is Jesus showing up in the Old Testament, that he is God, but he's also with God. That's what John 1.1 1, 1 tells us, that in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And so here Jesus is God. He speaks, and he's God speaking. He's also with God, okay? Um, and he speaks out of a burning bush. Now, it's kind of funny that we always refer to this passage as the passage of the burning bush, right? Because what's the bush not doing? Burning. Yeah, the bush isn't burning, okay? Um, it's on fire, but it's not burning. That's what's so crazy about it. Um, and what's cool about this idea is here, God has come down to meet his people. And how has God chosen to meet his people? In a shrub, in a little bush that's on fire, right? The, the maker of the whole universe. He doesn't show up, you know, he's not like a talking mountain. He's not speaking to Moses out of a thunderstorm. He speaks to him out of a bush, and it's not the last time that he's going to show up in something small and seemingly insignificant to meet with his people, right? Because two, a couple thousand years later, 6,000 years later, he shows up as a baby in the form of Jesus, or Jesus shows up in the form of a baby, as a baby, as a human, to meet with humankind. 
So here's God showing up to meet with Moses. He gets Moses' attention. Moses comes and God calls to Moses. He says, Moses, Moses, to get his attention. And Moses responds, here I am. And God says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. I don't think that we're supposed to hear this necessarily as kind of like a hostile thing. Okay? It's a recognition. Moses needs to recognize that this God that he's being introduced to is a holy God. And he doesn't say, I'm a holy God, get away from me. He says, I'm a holy God, so take off your shoes and come. It's an invitation. So God is inviting Moses into his presence. And this begins a theme throughout the book of Moses, uh, throughout the book of Exodus, of holiness. It's a really important theme of who is holy, what is holy, and how do we as sinful humans dwell in the presence of something that is holy or someone that is holy, all right? So Exodus is all about that because the back half of Exodus is all about the building of the, do you know what it is? Not the temple, what comes before the temple? The tabernacle, the tent, okay? The tent version of the temple, right? And what's the purpose of the tabernacle? But God's holiness to dwell with his people, right? So this is like the very beginning of that story in Exodus. Well, God identifies himself. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he also says, I'm the God of your fathers, Moses, the God of your fathers. Now, I wonder why he did this. I think he may have done this because at this point, Moses may be a little disenchanted with his past. Because remember how he said in chapter two that Moses grew up in the palace of Pharaoh, right? As an Egyptian. He hadn't lost his Hebrew connections though because what does he do? He goes out and when he sees the Egyptian beating the Hebrew, what does he do? He, he kills the Egyptian and he defends the Hebrew, right? He goes out to see his people is the way the story goes. So he knows these are his people. But then the next day he goes out and he, he tries to separate two Hebrews who are fighting and what do they do? What, what happens when he tries to separate the two Hebrews? Yeah, who made you judge over us? They reject him, don't they? And he knows now that Pharaoh knows he killed the Egyptian and Moses runs away. So Moses has been living with a foreign people. He's living in Midian with the Midianites, not Hebrews. And the last experience he had with Hebrews wasn't a really good one, was it? And so I think it's interesting that God says, I am the God of your fathers, of your family, Moses. I'm your God. And so he's reminding Moses kind of of his roots and where he came from and who he belongs to. Well, it says that Moses hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. And scholars, as you read about this, they're kind of split. Like, is Moses doing, is this, is this admirable or is this not admirable? Right? Because on the one hand, we're going to see later in Exodus, God says, no one can see my face and live. And so when Moses wants to see God's glory, it says that he puts him in the crag of a rock and he covers him with his hand and he lets Moses see his back after he walks past him, but not his face. So maybe this is an honorable thing. Like Moses is doing what you should do when God shows up. Don't look, don't look. You can't see God's face and live. But there's an interesting thing that happened just a couple chapters earlier in Genesis, which is God meets with Jacob. And God says the same thing he says to Moses. He says, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob says the same thing that Moses said, here I am, Lord. And God says to Jacob, 
do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Right? This is back when Jacob's trying to decide, what should I do? Should I go down to Egypt, the famine and all this? He says, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. And it doesn't say anything about Jacob being afraid of seeing God's face or hiding his face. And so what I think you could also say we see here is we see this is Moses' first interaction with this God, and he is afraid. And then you saw Jacob, and Jacob, at the end of his life, had had many interactions with God, and he wasn't afraid. And, and so there's something about getting to know this God that, yes, we should fear him, but we're not afraid of him because he's a good God. Well, so this first point, I think one thing we can take away from it is that simply God can meet with you anywhere. Notice that he doesn't bring Moses into a temple or into like a holy place to meet with him. He meets with him out on a mountain, out where his uh, sheep are. Moses was probably miles from anyone else, out alone taking care of sheep. We see this in the psalmist in Psalm 139. You guys remember that psalm that we studied at small groups last time? Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your right hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light be about me, about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So, so God can meet with you anywhere. God is everywhere. He doesn't need a holy place to meet with you. And that brings up the next question, which is, what makes a place holy or what makes something holy? If you guys were to, you know, go to Israel with me someday, you would notice there's a lot of holy places, right? Or holy sites is what they call them. And the question is, is it a Muslim holy site? Is it a Christian holy site? Like, who's, who, who's it holy to? But there's certain ways you conduct yourself in these holy sites. So you don't just go into a church blabbing your mouth off, you know, if it's a holy site. You go in quietly and reverently, and there's signs, you know, don't bring food and drink in here, take your hat off, no flash photography, that kind of stuff, because why? It's a holy place. Or is it? Is it really a holy place? This morning, Moira, I'm talking to my daughter, she says to me, you know, she's recently looked at some pictures that her aunt sent um, from going to Dubai, right? And she says to me, if I went to Dubai and went to that holy place, would I have to wear that thing on my head? So her aunt sent a picture of her visiting the Grand Mosque in Dubai. And all visitors who visit the Grand Mosque, they give women these special robes that they have to put and cover their heads out of respect because that's what Muslims do. They cover, women cover their heads when they go in here, right? So Moira's question is, would I have to wear that thing when I go into that holy place? And my answer is, that's not a holy place. Moira. I mean, technically the answer is, yes, they'd make you, you know? <laughs> but... The answer is, that's not a holy place. Well, why not? What makes a place holy is God's presence dwelling within that place. That's what makes a place holy. So according to the Bible, where are the holy places? Is it Jerusalem? Is it the church that is built over where Jesus died? Is it the garden tomb where maybe it's Jesus' tomb? Are those the holy places? No. Actually, throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, the holy places are you, where God chooses to dwell. If you're a follower of Christ, it says that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians, it says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Peter 2, it says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 
So all throughout the New Testament, what is holy is no longer a place, it's a people. And the reason those people are holy is because God has chosen to dwell with them. Right? So Moses walks up to a burning bush and it's holy because why? God is there. And when God left that area, all right, or if God's presence wasn't there and that bush stopped burning or whatever it is, it ceased to be holy. It wasn't holy anymore. It was a place you remembered a holy thing happened there, but that bush wasn't holy anymore. And so you, you are made to be the dwelling place for God's Holy Spirit. And not only you individually, but the whole church. Ephesians says that we together, that so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, saints, and members of the holy household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself uh, being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the church, people, we are being built together into a holy temple. We are where God's presence dwells. Okay, so God's presence is what makes something holy. And we have been made holy by God dwelling in us. So the second, let's look at the second point. God has come down, dot, 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 to send Moses. That's how you're supposed to read that. Okay, so let's read verses seven through nine. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring out my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Bring my people out of Egypt. So as I read that, I read verses 7 through 9, and my reaction would be, oh, thank goodness, God's coming. Like, he's heard, he's seen, and you'll notice that, what, so like, at the end of chapter 2, it also says that God, you know, he heard, he saw, he remembered, um, but what's new in this passage, it's repeating, he's heard, he saw, he remembered, is this verb, he's coming. God is now coming down to do something about it. And we think, oh, thank goodness, God is coming to fix everything. Like, thank goodness that you're coming, God. Um, it's this, just another testimony of the fact that our God is a God who is not an absent God. He's not a far-off God. He's a God who's willing to enter into our suffering with us most notably seen in Jesus Christ, right? We see, read in Isaiah that Jesus is uh, God who entered into our suffering with us, not just with us, but for us, taking our place, taking our suffering, okay? And God isn't just coming to deliver his people out of Egypt. He also is delivering them to somewhere even better. He's taking them to the promised land. He's taking them to much, somewhere much better. But then we read verse 10, and so we see, oh, yes, God is coming. But verse 10 says, and, by the way, Moses, I'm sending you. I was trying to think of an analogy of what this would be like, and I thought, have you ever been in a classroom when the teacher's gone? And, you know, at first it's like, whisper, 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 whisper. And then, like, the longer the teacher's gone, it's like, all right, I guess we'll just stop the whole whispering bit and we'll just talk normal now. And then, you know, the one kid in the corner crumples a paper up and tosses it over his head, and now you've got some papers going. 
And then maybe some kids from lunch have some unfinished business. So they're like in the back of the room and like, all right, yeah, you know, you remember what you said to me at lunch? All right, let's do this. We'll do this right now. Teacher's not coming back. And chaos is just starting to like grow and grow and grow. And maybe like punches are being thrown in that corner. And you're like, okay, when is the teacher coming back? It would be really nice if they came back now. And maybe you're close enough to the door that you can kind of like just like barely peek your head out the door and look. And you see the teacher coming down the hall. You're like, oh, thank goodness. Stop the madness. I'm so glad you're here. And then as she gets to the door, the teacher goes like this. I'm sending you to go fix it in there. Like, why? But you're here. Why don't you solve the problem? Like, you, you have the power. I'm just one of them. Why would you send me in there to fix it? I kind of feel like that's what Moses is sensing at this point. Right? Because who does he have to go up against? He has to go up against the most powerful man in the world at this time. Right? So Pharaoh... The, most power, the leader of the most powerful country, Pharaoh, that's who I get to go against. I get to go against Pharaoh, right? Because what does God say? God says, I'm sending you um, to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So not only is he sending him to the most powerful man in the world, he's sending him to take out the people who don't like him, right? Like the last time I tried this, I beat up, you know, I killed an Egyptian for them. And I went around trying to, like, break up fights. I was ready to be a leader. And they said, who made you prince over us? Right? And I was run out of the land by Pharaoh. So Moses probably doesn't have a whole lot of incentive to get back in there. So the question is, why does God do this? Why would God, you know, God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, why is God sending Moses to go solve the problem when he's the one with all the power? God's the one with all the power. Well, the first thing I want to point out is this isn't the first and it's not the last time that this is going to happen. In Scripture, God's normal way of working is to use the people that he creates to accomplish his purposes. And when he chooses people to accomplish them, he doesn't choose, like, the superheroes. He doesn't choose the best of the best to go and accomplish everything that he wants to accomplish. I mean, look at Abraham. Abraham, you know, yeah, he gets up, he leaves his land, but in the case, course of his life, he gives away his wife twice to other men just to protect his own hide. Um, he ends up having a baby with the maidservant because he, he's thinking, like, God's promise. He's not going to come, so I'm going to have to figure this out on my own. We got Jacob next. I mean, Jacob's just a liar and a cheater. Um, Joseph is one of the youngest sons. He's not given the place of prominence. So he's not working with the best guys. So why does God do this? Why does he choose to work with people who are weak and, and rejected? Um, and I think one of the reasons is because by doing so, it gives God glory. Let me use another analogy to help prove that. I heard this from Kevin DeYoung in his sermon on this text. Let's say you take two bicyclers, right? One of them is like a pro Tour de France type cycler, and the other is just like your normal kind of weekend warrior goes out, rides his bike in the weekend. Um, and you give the weekend warrior, the normal amateur guy, like a $15,000 bike. Did you guys even know that bikes could cost that much? They can, all right? Um, it's like $15,000 bike, top of the line, top notch, like speedy bicycle. And then the pro, you give him a bike, and his bike has a basket on the front, and it's got like the little ding, 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 ding thing on the side. Maybe he's even got a couple of baseball cards stuck in the spoke, so it makes that motorcycle sound as he rides it. Right? Like, okay, you guys are going to race, okay? And you set them out, and, and you race them, and the pro wins the race. Now, 
you respect him even more because of the bike he was riding, don't you? Right? And you say, that guy was amazing because, I mean, look at what he won on. Look what he was riding. And the same thing happens when God uses weak people to accomplish his purposes. When God uses us to accomplish his purposes, the glory doesn't go to the bike. Like, oh, that bike was amazing. It's got a basket and it's got a ding, ding. No, that's not the point. The point is the guy riding the bike was amazing. Right? So in the same way, when God uses us to accomplish his purposes, it gives him glory because we say, what a great God we have that he can use even us to accomplish his purposes. Well, the last point is that God is going to be with Moses, okay? So it's, it's a terrifying thing um, to go to Pharaoh, to go to try to deliver these people who reject him. And, and so notice what Moses says to God in verse 11. It says, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the peop- children of Israel out of Egypt? Right, he's saying what most of us would say. Who am I? And God says to him, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Okay, so Moses asks this question to God. Who am I? Who am I that I should go? And I think what you guys would realize is in all of history, any Christian who became like a great notable Christian, there were nobodies at some point, right? So like, let's talk about Billy Graham. Billy Graham just passed away. Potentially the most influential Christian in American history, right? Maybe Jonathan Edwards is up there too. Um, but modern history, we've got Billy Graham. Billy Graham, born in North Carolina on a dairy farm. He was known for climbing trees and making Tarzan noises and scaring the sheep, okay? So like, that's, that's where Billy Graham comes from. Like When God chooses Billy Graham to start working with him, there were a number of times where Billy was like headed in the wrong direction and people came by like, Billy, we think you've got some great gifts, but you've got to make some better choices here. So Billy Graham wasn't Billy Graham when God chose him. Does that make sense? He wasn't like, oh, Billy Graham. Like, oh, I, I could use that guy. Billy Graham was just a normal guy. And yet he was willing to be used by God. So who am I? Well, it doesn't really matter who you are. God can use anyone. And that's basically what God is saying to Moses in his response. Notice Moses says to God, who am I that I would do this? And God doesn't answer him. He doesn't say, well, you're Moses. Come on. You're the boy that survived. You're the only Hebrew to be raised in the royal Egyptian schooling system. Um, you've already shown that you are up to the task. You've already killed an Egyptian with your bare hands. Like You've got zeal. You've got spunk. You've got the muscles. You've got the look. He doesn't say any of that stuff. He says, I will be with you, Moses. Because it doesn't matter who you are. It matters who's with you. It matters who I am. Okay? So God says, what's going to make the difference is that I am with you. You need to know me, not you. In other words, it's not the bike that matters. It's the one who's riding the bike. Um, And he says, I'm going to give you a sign. And here's the sign that you'll know that I've sent you. The sign that you know that I'm going to send you, that I'm going to be with you, is when it's all said and done, you're going to bring the Israelites back to this mountain. Now, if I was in Moses' spot, I might be like, can I have another sign? Like one that I can see right now? Isn't it kind of funny that God gives Moses a sign that he's not going to see until the very end? But in a sense, we've all received that same sign, right? Because Jesus says to us, 
Repent and believe. Take up your cross. Follow me and what? You will have eternal life. Well, how do we know? Well, we know when we get there, right? We know that we have eternal life once we get to the end. And so we're kind of in a similar spot as Moses here. And what it does is it makes us trust God more and have to put our faith in God. Well, let's bring it to a close here real quick. Um, All Christ followers should be able to relate to Moses because we all have a similar experience with God. We all have a similar experience with God. You might be saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never been to Egypt, Sinai, burning bush, none of that stuff rings a bell. Well, listen to what Jesus says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus came and said to them, to all the disciples, right? He said it to his disciples, but he's really saying it to us, to all disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So in a sense, we've all been sent just like Moses, right? We've all been told, go and help deliver my people. We all have a calling on our lives to go out into a hostile, scary world and to lead people out of slavery because we've learned in the scriptures that we're all enslaved to sin, aren't we? So God has called each of us to go and lead people out of slavery to sin. So we've been sent to our neighbors, our classmates, our teammates, to people in our show choir, to people in our bands, to students all the way in Slovenia. We are sent to go and share the good news that Jesus can free you from your sins. And like Moses, we're all inadequate. None of us is up to the task. We're all nervous. We're all anxious. We're all weak. We all feel like we're not good enough communicators. We don't know enough. Isn't there someone better that you could send? But God says to each of us what he says to Moses. If we ask those questions, he says the same thing. Because what's the very next verse in Matthew? Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus' words echo what God had said to Moses doesn't matter who you are because I'm going to be with you. So Jesus says it doesn't matter who you are. I will be with you to the end of the age. Now what's interesting is this passage was one of the passages that was most important to John Patton, the missionary who goes to the cannibals. It was the verse that gave him the courage to go and do what he did. When he told people that he was going to go over to the New Hebrides, one old man said, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. And here's what he says, Mr. Dixon the wrong missionary said, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, meaning you're going to die soon. They are to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether my body is eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. He was not afraid to go to a cannibalistic tribe because he knew that God would be with him. So as we end, just a couple questions to think about how do you feel about evangelism these days? Are you going where you have been sent? Does the knowledge that God is with you help you to have courage? And if not, I want to point out this. It's not because the task is too big. It's not because, well, if God knew what Wheaton South was like, he would know that this is too big. Really? Bigger than slavery, Egypt, Pharaoh? The task is not what's too big. It's that your view of God is too small. And that's what most of us suffer from. We suffer from a view of God that is too small. So how do we gain a greater view of God? How do we make God bigger in our minds? You have to come to know the God of the Bible. And that's why it's so important for us to study books like Exodus. Old Testament books that help us to see God is 
big. And if you think God seems big in Exodus now, just wait. The next few chapters are going to make him even bigger. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the chance to study your word this morning. Um, I pray that you would enlarge our view of you. Not that you are small, but that in our fear and our pride, we oftentimes don't give you credit for how big you are. I thank you, God, that you can use anyone. And I pray that, if nothing else, that word this morning would encourage these students to know that it doesn't matter who they are, but what matters is who's with them. And Jesus has promised that he will be with us even to the end of the age. Empower them and give them courage to carry out the Great Commission. In Jesus' name, amen.